am Max. I Rich. Hey, and on this podcast, with Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983 on this episode in particular we're taking a look at weird war tales number 45 but first rich has some retroactive history for you we're 50 some odd episodes in and we've played it pretty fast and loose around here so i think it's time to write down some of the unwritten rules we have or reaffirm those we mentioned in passing about 40 some odd episodes ago just so you understand our intentions one, we're going to do all 124 issues in order, unless one of us <coughs> accidentally gets run over by a car driven by one of our wives. Not going to do 114, 76, 47, 111, 9, etc. If nothing else, it'll ensure the APO Weird War Tales maintains some sense of order. Same with these six redeployment issues. I know that means the creature commandos are still something like five years away, but it can't be helped. Two, Road Warrior episodes, notwithstanding, we will never go more than one episode without returning to the title book the show is named for. All special missions will be one episode. This also includes the redeployment issues. Can't leave the loyal listeners hanging. We promise to visit each one of the big five books also. Two down, three to go, and one of them is already tentatively scheduled. Three. On the FB page, creator remembrance posts will always will only appear once said creator's work appears in an issue of WWT we've covered, unless there's only like a week's difference. Klaus Jensen, Dick Ayers, Frank Miller, and other greats are in the pipeline. And isn't the reward worth the wait? Besides, I don't want to run out of content. I have no idea what our plans are going to be once we get to issue 124. Twilight Zone? X-Files? Ambushbug? Assuming we're not living in a day-after-doomsday tale by then, you'll know what we do. And as a personal announcement, as Max has joyfully admitted, I write the scripts. Between that and History Minutes, sometimes my motivations to document a lengthy CNC takes a hit, but that's okay. No one wants a 90-minute episode, and most importantly, Max doesn't want to edit it. Intel report. <laughs> Iron Ghost a six-issue mini by Image Comics in 2005, script by Chuck Dixon, art by Sergio Cariello, 1945 Berlin, the fall of the Nazi empire is inevitable, but there is still something even more dangerous to the Third Reich than the ever-approaching allies. Its name is the Iron Ghost, and he's killing German officers and foot soldiers guilty of crimes that would go unpunished. Inspectors Tadhauser and Waltz are assigned to find and capture the mysterious vigilante. But once they discover the truth, will they be able to stop him? Will they even want to? If you don't get a shadow vibe off this guy in the first 15 seconds, you're not trying. Dixon didn't even try to hide it. Sergio Cariello attended the Joe Kubert School, which shouldn't surprise anyone, because if you didn't know any better, you'd think Andy or Adam did the art. The similarity is that stunning. I spent a bunch of time in the Grand Comics database updating info for this series. Yeah, I think I completely missed out on that one, and that would have been right up my alley uh, in 2005 or right now. So I'll have to borrow that off you at some point in the near future with all that out of the way, though, you got your retroactive history. You got your Intel report. We're going to give you a little break. 
to take a listen to a promo for another fine piece of podcast entertainment. And when we get back, we'll take a look at the issue at hand. Hey, buddy. Want to go for a ride in my flying car? Nah. How about we go fly around with our jetpacks? Nah. The future's just so boring. Is the future boring you too? Well, maybe you should listen into the Save for Half podcast. The podcast about old school gaming, where we take a look at old gaming books with fresh eyes. You can find us at saveforhalf.com or on iTunes or around the corner. Perhaps we're standing behind you right now. Don't look. And we're back. So. As I mentioned before the break, we are taking a look at Weird War Tales number 45, and as is SOP here on the program, Rich is here to hit you with the cover detail. Price 25 cents. Art by Joe Kubert. The red Weird War Tales rests on a black top half of the cover under the Line of DC Superstars banner. Instead of three heads, there's only the skeletal skeletal one on the left half with featuring the Battle of Bloody Valley on the right half. On the borders of the cover, five skeletal, presumably, U.S. World War I soldiers wait in ambush in a cave. In the center of the cover, a German officer leads five other soldiers inside, their attention focused on a sixth soldier lying on the ground in a tattered uniform, clutching a potato masher cover date march april 1976 date of release december 16th 1975 killjoy you all know about my rant about miscolored nazi armbands in the field on the wrong arm so i won't repeat it here but maybe i will who knows also sorry joe but to my trained eye it looks like the doughboys are carrying grants not o3 springfields a world war one serviceman would be carrying comments and commendations this cover reminds me of issue 20 where the two native voodoo warriors are about to give a napoleonic era french private a very bad day they're nazis so you are already looking forward to whatever atrocity is about to be inflicted upon them the dead gis look like they're about to have a great time the orange sky behind the officer is a great contrast to the purple and black of the cave rock and effortlessly draws your eye to the center of the cover me like Yes, indeed. This is much more like it, Joe. I would still nitpick that the skeletons in the foreground should be colored less brightly to match the darker lighting of their depth in the cave. It would certainly add to the moodiness and impending sense of doom of the situation being depicted. Overall, though, this is a fine return to form for Cuber and a great example of a well-designed and iconic representation of the series concept. Underneath that excellent cover opens up with what's becoming a trend in recent issues here, an excellent introductory page. Script is by Paul Levitz. Art is by the wonderful Jerry Talayak. Synopsis for this one page goes like this. It's... The return of the framing sequence, as I mentioned. In a mostly blue and black full-page panel, death stands with a scythe between German and American armies who are killing each other while overhead a spaceship flies toward the Americans. 
And for our intro text piece, the narrator says, Welcome to the battlefield of the Weird War, where the centuries converge in carnage. Don't stray from the careful path, I'll lead you on, reader, else you might be trapped forever in the mad military maelstrom betwixt the never-dying infantrymen of the Second World War and the incredible alien warriors of the First Galactic Conflict. Follow me, for I am death, and this is my territory. All right. No killjoy on that. How could there be? Right? So I'll move us on to the comments and commendations, and I'll start off by saying... I cannot rave enough about these Jerry Talayak intro pages. Not only do we get the excellent intro text you just heard, so excellently delivered by me, which gave me flashbacks to the classic sci-fi story, A Sound of Thunder, by Ray Bradbury. Look it up. But we also get the amazing drawing by Maestro Talayak, the classically grim reaper-clad host, the seemingly spectral carnage to all sides of him, and the freaking spaceship in the skies above. I am in. While I like the art itself, I'm less of a fan of the coloring job. I, I think I would have preferred a typically presented page here. The, hey, this is what we're going to be talking about, approached by the narrator is pretty nice, though. I dig that. And we've talked amongst ourselves, so, and uh, I guess I'll go first. The Battle of Bloody Valley, as teased on the cover. Six pages, script by George Cashdan, art by Buddy Gurnail. Our old buddy, Buddy Gurnail. My buddy, my buddy. Shut up. Many are the excuses that men could cock for waging the glorious bloodbath known as war. There have been wars of enslavement and wars of liberation, wars for territorial conquest and wars for human rights. Rare indeed is the war fought for pure pleasure as in the Battle of Bloody Valley. In a remote sector of Italy, a German platoon clings valiantly to its final foothold in the mountains. The Americans outnumber them by the thousands. And when US air support adds their weight to the onslaught, the Germans break and flee into the mountains. Driven by sheer fright, they scatter wildly through dark, eerie corridors until forced to stop when an acrid fog fills their lungs. Their location isn't on their maps and is concealed by cloud cover. Eyes burning and unable to breathe, the Germans fall unconscious. Lieutenant Berg is beyond bewildered when he awakens to discover he and his men are being cared for by ancient Romans. One of them tells him to remain calm, that he is still very weak. When questioned, the Roman tells Berg that they were a people whom time had forgotten, and that nestled in these tall mountains, their existence was unknown to the rest of the world. Demanding to have their weapons returned and be shown the way out, the Roman gently admonishes the officer. Nonsense, you would never survive the journey. As for weapons... He gestures to a pile of ancient helmets, swords, nets, axes, maces, and the like. These will be your weapons. Unlike your modern tools of warfare, these will provide pleasant exercise as we nurse you back to health. As the Roman walks off, 
The officer exclaims, these people are completely insane. One of his men agrees, but you know, they're also harmless. May as well indulge them until our strength returns. Time passes and the men's strength returns as they engage in mock combat. But Berg is faced with a new problem. His troops are beginning to enjoy this game a little too much. They are still soldiers of the Third Reich. It is time to be shown the route out. But again, the Romans gently object. Berg's suspicions are mounting. Their hosts are hiding a deep secret. They must find their own way out. That night, the Germans make their way down a rocky pass armed with their ancient weapons. A steel door slams down behind them, cutting off their retreat. The Germans discover themselves standing in an arena with all the townspeople gazing down at them. Gladiators, ye who are about to die, I salute thee. Berg is stunned. They don't really expect the Germans to fight each other until unearthly shrieks fill the air, and the Germans are terrified as a cloud of giant vampire bats hungering for their blood plummet towards them. They fight gallantly to the last man, with Berg being the last to fall. The Romans are appreciative of the contest. Capital! The finest gladiators we ever trained! I do hope more stragglers arrive soon, so our little pets don't go hungry for too long. No killjoy? So straight to the CNC. My buddy Grenail established a pretty high bar in Weird War Tale 40's The Warrior Breed, and I'm happy to see he maintained it here. Too bad we're only going to see him one more time in this book. My three selections, page two, panel three of the choking German officer, page four, panel three of the pensive shadowing on the face of the same officer, and page six, guess what panel? Three of the same officer being swarmed by the cloud of ravenous bats. World War II meets the Roman Empire. These weren't Nazis. I feel a little bad for these guys. They just as easily could have been American or British. Good story all the way around. Ah, yes, a classic fattening up the prey tale in line with countless stories from ages past, from Hansel and Gretel on up, and doubtless going all the way back to the dawn of storytelling primates. And it's a well-told one, too. Not only that, but as Rich mentioned, we get the excellent art of Buddy Gurnail, embellishing the tale with surplus creativity and style all the way through. You know me, I love the effort put into the rendition of the story's skeletal host. And in panel four of the first page, we also see how Gurnail intends to keep putting his back into it with the half-skull tossed in a pile of treasure version of the host device. Rich called out panel three on page two, so I'll continue on with panel four, which is a great example of one of my favorite techniques. You may remember me going on about it in our Valentine's Day special. The unrealistic coloring of the officer's face to reflect mood. It's a comic book. Let's get creative. I like it. I'd also like to draw attention to the dynamic shifts in perspective and scene choices on page four, panels two through five, keeping a sequence of all talking, no action panels, visually interesting all the way through. And on page five, panel five, we get another example of that mood coloring that I enjoy so much, 
followed by the awesome page full of bat monsters on page six. Great stuff. This is Weird War Tales, people. And since it is Weird War Tales, wouldn't you know it, there's a letters page about previous issues of Weird War Tales right here in this very comic book. It's in the section called APO Weird War Tales. And my selected letter to Weird War Tales starts off like this. It says, Dear Joe, WWT number 41 proved once again that novels can work effectively in this magazine as long as the full space is used. It must be hard to do a story like that because you have to build characters, move them in the war, and give the reader a jolt ending, and you have more room to do it in. I must say you accomplished that with number 41. Although Mike used a lot of stereotyped characters in his script, it was not all that bad. I'm glad that he centered around the weird side of a real event. Interesting. Nice climactic ending, too. Nice climatic ending, he says here. I want that boop. I really didn't expect it. Garcia Lopez did a nice job on the art, but I think he was a little weak on the action scenes. Editorial inflection mine right there. <laughs> the movement did flow as it should. The figures seemed a little stiff. I'm sure he'll improve. Please, more science fiction. Steve Andrews, Richfield, Minnesota. Joe's response says, Reactions were mixed to Garcia's WWT debut, but we're very fond of his art. So much so that now he's working regularly on Jonah Hex, Hercules, and Batman! I just want to say, I'm sure he'll improve. Ha! <laughs> Granted, I was less than impressed by JLGL's work in his second appearance in this series, but the degree to which that statement about him improving underestimates Garcia Lopez's impending impact on the very medium of comic books is simply comical to witness in hindsight. I couldn't pass that one up. My letter is from Robert Chan from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Dear Joe, I have no complaints about the art in Weird War Tales 41, but the story left me wondering, for the most part, the Dead Draftees wasn't a bad story. The manner in which factual data was worked into the story and the characterizations were good. But the climax and denouement left much to be desired. It seemed to me that you threw in the ghosts just so you could print that particular story in WWT. I was actually enjoying the story until you decided to throw those ghosts in. They just didn't blend in with the rest of the story. You might get the same feeling if you found out that the demon responsible for all that destruction in The Exorcist was the ghost of Donald Duck. If you had only foreshadowed an element of the macabre earlier in the story, perhaps the ghosts would have been easier to accept. Regardless of that flaw, the point of the story, was there ever such a thing as good violence, is well appreciated. One suggestion I have for you is that you should supplement the day after Doomsday strip with a feature at the science fiction level concerned with what constitutes war in other worlds. Does it necessarily mean violence? And Joe answers, even here on Earth, war isn't always violence. Sometimes it's economic or social or even political. But comics tend towards the violent aspects of war on Earth or in space because they provide the most dynamic art. And that's what we need. And I'm just going to say a couple of things. Yeah, I'm sorry. Full disclosure. Yeah, I've never seen The Exorcist, but 
I got to admit, having the ghost taking the form of Donald Duck would be freaking hilarious. <laughs> and a gripe about Civil War ghosts. Civil War ghost tours have been money makers for decades. Go to Gettysburg and see how many places offer them. Gotta disagree with the overall sentiment of Mr. Chan here. Yeah. Yeah, seconded there. And speaking of second, we're going to move on to the second full-length story in this issue. It is entitled Conquest. Six pages long. The script is by our buddy Jack Oleg. Pencils by Weird War Tales' first and only timer, Mike Vosberg. Inks also by WWT first-timer and infamous comic book staffer Vince Coletta. And the synopsis for this little tale starts off like so. Our skeletal narrator in a spacesuit leads us in. It had to happen. In the end, one day, Earth was no longer big enough for mankind or mankind's dreams. So there had to be men like the Major, men who fought their wars beyond the stars, and who lived for only one thing, conquest. The rocket was a thunderbolt, a needle of destruction poised to leap, and the Major was content. High in his tiny cockpit, he fingered his instruments. And ah, but it was good to be again at the controls of a sleek fighter, to be a man. And why not? Out there was the universe, the universe that men had conquered, that they were meant to conquer. And so the pride mounted in him. But there was still a little time left to the major then, time in which to dream his waking dream, to remember how it had all begun. And here's how it had begun. He'd celebrated crippling an enemy ship during a swirling combat and admonished his first officer for wanting to let the enemy go as he lined up the killing blow. Don't be a fool. This is war. We gave them a chance to surrender. All they had to do was accept our ultimatum. Surrender? But we're the invaders. They only wanted to be left in peace to work out their own destiny. And our destiny is to rule. Mankind was born to rule the universe. That's our destiny. Major Ross finished off the enemy ship, then led the attack on the planet below. That planet. What had been its name? The Major had only been a lieutenant then. He no longer remembered. But he could still remember how mankind had burned it to a cinder and gone on. How many other planets had there been since then? How many aliens had died? Millions? Billions? Ross had been promoted and decorated for his actions. The Major swelled with pride again, remembering. Ah, those had been good days, exciting days. And then there had been the most exciting day of all. The day the space fleet returned to Earth. But something was wrong. It appeared that half of America was burning. Earth was under attack by an alien fleet, and the ships of mankind swept in to defend their home. But their ships were no match for those of the aliens. They were cut to pieces despite their valiant efforts. Ross's ship was hit and crash landed in the wilderness. Only the Major himself survived that crash. And so, in time, he had come to learn the whole story of how the aliens had come to Earth. Aboard the enemy flagship, 
The Admiral examined the prize on the view screen. These Earthmen are fools. If they had not set out to conquer the universe, we might never have known of their existence. But now, for years, our own planet has been bare of all its metal, stripped. But if we can't take Earth, we shall have all we need. Attack! Half the Earth had perished in that first attack. But mankind had been stubborn. Men had fought like demons. Mankind would not be defeated. And so now, how pride beat once again within the Major. He sat at the controls of his fighter. Rocket ready for takeoff. Counting down. Lift off in four seconds. Three, two. Just then, whip sliced through the air, wrapping itself around the Major's neck and pulling him out of the chair. Just for a moment, the Major was a conqueror again. Out there was man's destiny, conquest. And then the moment was gone. A second lash struck the Major's face. So, an alien sneered. You sneak back. I thought so. Out, move, while you were still able to move. The Major tried. Then, outside, his eyes dwelt lovingly on the rocket. He tried to feel again. The old pride to be certain that men were destined to rule the universe. But the dream was over. It had ended in a junkyard. Somehow, all that he could manage now was a sob. The major ship was actually just a destroyed hulk in a scrapyard with several other humans toiling in the background behind him. The narrator comes in and finishes up for us. Fantastic! It could never happen! Perhaps! And yet, who knows? So, take heed, all out there. Maybe, just maybe, it's a lot later than you think! <laughs> all right, no killjoy. Rich, coming in with the C&C. The aliens look like they came right out of Mars Attacks. The trading cards that the 1996 movie was based on came out in 1962, which was inspired by Wallywood's work on EC Comics' Weird Science 16 from 1952. So the origin goes way back farther than I first thought. Fosberg and Coletta must have been Weird Science fans themselves, because if you look at the alien on that issue's cover and the way the alien is portrayed in the story, there's no freaking way that's an accident. Page 5, panel 3. Major Ross looks like an evil Flash Gordon. Page 2, panel 2. And we have a Planet of the Apes homage on page 6, panel 1. Cultural references galore. Check, 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 check. The album. Bosberg and Clutter go all in on these space panels, drawing more planets than stars in most of them. Even in the panels where the action is taking place over Earth. Page 3 has... Everything I need from the alien civilizations being wiped out to the major's BS modesty while being decorated. And we have an Easter egg on page six, panel six. Look on the ground between the alien's legs. Is that a witching hour comic book I see? Issue 62 on the shelves, same time this issue was, just saying. Yeah, that was a freaking great catch, man. I, I had to go back and look after I read that in the script. And uh, yeah, yeah, real nice. So <laughs> for my CNC, I say right away, 
you know me, this one's off to a great start with our groovy, space-suited, skeletal host practically snapping his fingers as he invites us in. I always appreciate, too, the fluffy cloud panel borders for flashbacks, as seen on page one, panels four and five. But I gotta draw attention to the, let's say, homoerotic, somewhat phallocentric smorgasbord that is narrative text in panels one to three, which you've already heard me read, wherein Ross fingered his instruments, thrilled to what it meant to be a man, and felt a rush as pride mounted within him. I think maybe toxic masculinity might be part of the theme here, folks, in a comic from the 70s? How could it be? Comics hadn't gotten woke yet, right? Anyway, Rich alluded to it already. But check out page two, panel five, for an absolutely Kirby Ditko-esque space scene. Just, it bears repeating that, spoiler alert, I like the heck out of this story. Regarding the stark scene on page three, panel one, of the simply beautiful alien city being destroyed, why are aliens so often depicted as just walking around fully nude? I know the artists want to show off the cool new inhuman anatomy they've designed, but geez, it's a little creepy after a while. It goes on to this day. <laughs> so speaking of the artists being weird science fans, check out the incredibly EC comic style base on Ross's never named Bleeding Heart Buddy on page four, panel one. Like if the alien wasn't enough for you, look at the rendition on that face. It, that'll tie the bow on it. The crash scene on page five, panel one, is a rather pretty little picture, too. And it's all wrapped up so very nicely for me with the return of our groovy galactic ghoulie of a host at the end of page six. Like I said, I freaking love this one. From the over-the-top lampooning of Manifest Destiny and the white-slash-Earthman's burden of it all, to the retro sci-fi classic feel of the art, this was just a pure 100% winner in my book. Next up, Ordeal. Five pages. Script by Jack Olick. Art by a third Weird War Tales first timer and second only timer, Noli Panaligan. Cover story, kind of. April 3rd, 1944, Marcel Province, France. A P-51 Mustang strafes a German truck convoy. Lieutenant Franz Werner is traveling in an open convertible, and he tells the superior officer sitting behind him that they must get undercover. The major dismisses the aerial threat. The cave the Frenchman is guiding them to lies just ahead. Conveniently, the fighter flies off as the Germans arrive at the cave but it will no doubt report the sighting to his base. The Frenchman is terrified about entering the cave. During the last war, a company of French infantry had been trapped inside. When they refused to surrender, they were killed to the last man. A reverend grave now marked the spot. It said the cave is haunted and that the dead rise up. The major scoffs at the Frenchman's fears. The Nazis put no stock in peasant superstitions and have no further use for the peasant. The major shoots the man in the chest and orders the lieutenant to take command of the detail unloading the supplies into the cave. Werner protests. That is the job for a sergeant, not an officer. But the major insists, belittling the junior officer for his lack of initiative when the fighter had attacked. 
The major will return the next day with the colonel for an inspection, and the job had better be complete by then. To his credit, Werner does his duty. The task is almost complete when Allied artillery begins to rain down on them. The plane had reported their position. The barrage lasts 26 minutes, and when it was over, Werner was trapped inside the cave thanks to the entrance collapsing during the shelling. It'll take hours for his men to dig him out. Buried alive, Werner gazes at the French grave in deafening silence for hours. His eyes must be playing tricks on him, Werner thinks, as the dead begin to rise from their grave and start to come towards him. He pulls out his pistol and fires at the apparitions, and when that has no effect, he breaks open a crate of hand grenades and lobs them again and again at the French ghosts, driving them back. Outside, Werner's men heard the deadly thunder of grenades coming from inside the cave and wondered what it was the officer fought so ferociously. Whatever it was, the explosions ceased abruptly. The colonel arrived with the major in the morning, just as the diggers broke into the cave. Werner was dead, crushed under the weight of a stalactite that had broken loose from the cave's ceiling by the concussive blasts of the grenades. What was he fighting? He'd been alone. You don't suppose he really believed the story about the cave being haunted. The major dismisses the thought. Not Werner. Of that I can assure you. Werner was not the type to think he saw the dead. But if Werner was not a superstitious man, what was he fighting in that unholy cavern? And why was he a casualty of the Weird War? Kildred, these stories says French infantry were wiped out, but the helmets are British. Page four, panel one. And it took entirely too long for that fire mission to get called in. That convoy gets unloaded except for one truck before anything happens. We were lucky the Germans were even still there. All right, so comments and commendations. I will kick it off and say that this issue must be trying to butter me up here, and it is working. Just look at that host logo intro panel all melted into one seamless object on the first page. Take it easy, comic book. I'm already spoken for. If that weren't enough, there's the entire rest of page one, carrying us along with stylish ease through an establishing shot, a close-up, and a transition panel so smoothly and effectively. However, page two starts really highlighting my main gripe with this artist and with a lot of artists of this era. The use of photo references for the figure drawings and faces are just too obvious here to the point of being distracting. And the overly faithful devotion to the photos being used results in figures looking too stiff for comic book work, in my opinion. However, the creative layout of panels two through four and a floating panel bar on this very same page that I'm complaining about goes a long way toward making up for all that. Page three does a lot of work in that direction as well, especially in the very dynamic shot of the lieutenant leaping to safety in panel two, and just the overall flow of the action as well. On page four, panels one to two, I really appreciate the otherworldly yellow coloring of anything directly involving the specters, and the drawing on page five, panel two, depicting the discovery of lieutenant's corpse is excellently done. As for the story, well, it was okay. Speaking of reminders from previously covered issues, Weird War Tales 24's The Invisible Enemy 
where a German soldier is trapped underground for years, finding spectral tigers, which had a cool history minute about a German trapped underground near Warsaw in a supply depot for years. Go give it a listen. The major is a much bigger bad guy than the lieutenant is, honestly. The second story in the book where you feel a bit of sympathy for the bad guys that aren't really that bad. Penalgan's art is rock solid. Huh? And I'm a bit sad we only see him in these pages this one time. I really like page two, panel one, of how the tomb of the French troops is portrayed in the cave. Reminds me a bit of the grave of the unknown French poilu interred under the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Despite it being my Killjoy panel, I'm still a big fan of the artistry of the undead soldiers attacking Werner. In the last panel of the story of the skeletal German guide gazing at the war grave with the ray of sunshine shining down on it. I'm up next in the script, so I'm just going to keep on yapping. Ads, our favorite ads. Oh boy, 1970s, baby. Super glowing full color t-shirt designs. Lowest price, 95 cents each. Save, three for 225. Five for three seventy-five, seven for four seventy-five, twelve for seven fifty. And there's uh, there's two car- uh, uh, cartoon characters in the upper right-hand corner that are having a conversation. Look at all these super far-out T-shirts designs. My friends are always asking me where I got these great shirts, and here's your chance to get them too from Imagination House, of course. All designs are super glowing, full color. Iron-on in seconds to your favorite T-shirts, jeans, jackets, pillowcases, pillowcases, sweatshirts, and more. Imagination House, Department BCD 51 TS, 280 Hamilton Street, Rahway, New Jersey, 07065. Oh, man. (laughs) This full-page ad is equal parts amazing and horrible. The way the guy and gal in the top left corner are drawn would be rejected by independent comic companies. 34 or the 35 shirt options are in black and white, and most are at most an inch tall and are really hard to figure out what half of them are. I mean, you look at them, you know, Bull Shirt, uh, Felix the Cat, uh, Roadrunner, Plymouth, the uh, 55 Chevy, You Turn Me On, Class of 75, Explosions, Fires, Popeye, you know, stuff like that. You really got to look at these things to see, to even pretend to have an idea what the hell they are. All of us of a certain age will remember these things. About after a half a dozen washings, they start to shrink crack and fade and you'd always get that sweaty spot directly under the application these things honestly sucked and it's amazing there were whole stores that sold nothing but these iron-ons usually in tours traps areas ah the 70s (laughs) indeed and the 70s live on i feel like i like to support like independent comic companies and stuff like that like you know buy their merch that they have on their, say, Redbubble sites and stuff. And I get the t-shirts, and they have the big, cool-looking logo on them. But they're still, they still feel like a big sheet of plastic sitting on your chest. And uh, they're not really good for much, other than maybe you wear it to a Comic-Con, so people go, hey, <laughs> but they're uncomfortable. They, they don't last long, and they suck. So don't worry. The spirit of the Iron-On t-shirt lives on. But... Support your local independent podcast or comic book company anyway. And uh, speaking of supporting companies, I'll move on to my spotlighted ads. That's right. I picked two because I'm a cheater. And, you know, we're, we're reveling in the 70s here. So what better way to do that than learning how to make money customizing cars, vans, cycles, buggies inside and out? That's right. And vans 
in that list of vehicles is is highlighted in red because you know it's all about making the custom van art people this is a decent sized ad promising to train you how to join the legions of modern day van goghs or van goghs in customizing vans with wicked cool art yeah it says you can learn the art of customizing inside too but who cares about that it says train at home in your spare time we furnish everything you need to learn this new career even show you how and where to buy equipment and supplies at low prices so they want to get you in on say like the dude in the ad is engaging in he's using an airbrush spray paint can to finish up like a little um ben-hur kind of chariot race thing on the side of a van where the van's wheel is the wheel of the chariot man and that's just the tip of the iceberg you know how this goes you could put gandalf on there you could put lord of the rings stuff your conan your Battlestar galactica or all of it all at once that's what you're here for that's what we should still be doing today and this ad that you'll see a picture of in the album promises to teach you how to learn this invaluable skill. So I'm breezing over that ad. There's a lot of great text in there, but I want to get on to my second ad, which is right on the back cover and ties in with this very noble career promoting ad that I just finished talking about. This one is from Monogram Snap Type Model Kits, and it says they're fantastic. Monogram's exciting new Snap Type Vans. It's no secret the van craze is sweeping the nation. See what I'm talking about? There's synergy here. That's the word you're looking for, synergy. But you know who's got the hottest vans on the road in model kit form? Monogram. I don't know about putting the models on the road. That wouldn't last long. But hey, that's right. We've got Dodge and Chevy vans molded in brightly colored plastic with flashy mural decals, bubble windows, and air scoops. Just like the vans you see every day on the street. Oh. We used to. We used to be a real country, you know what I mean? And you know what's really dynamite about these vans? They're so easy to put together. All the pieces just snap together. No gluing or painting needed. See, they're speaking my language. These are the model kits I could actually handle as a kid. In minutes, you've got a far-out van that you've built yourself. So hurry down to your favorite store and ask for Monogram's new Dodge and Chevy snap-type vans. There's only one way to describe them. They're fantastic. Now, it's like a full page back cover ad with an illustrated seashore with palm trees and a lighthouse. I'm getting New England and West Coast vibes. I don't know. I'm not asking too many questions here. You got an inset panel of some blonde kid with huge collar lapels poking out of his sweater, putting together the kit. And in the foreground is a magnificent model van. It's like bright green. It's got a banana decal next to the bubble window. On the other side of that is like a guy doing a wheelie on a motorcycle against a desert moon landscape. Underneath that, the title, Banana Split. Get it? (laughs) There's fire coming off the rims. This thing is beautiful. How could you not want a monogram? Snap tight model kit, right? So... Right here in this very issue, folks, we've got the iron-on t-shirts. We've got the learn how to customize vans. We've got, you know, getting the the kids while they're young, building the snap-tight 
kick-ass looking customized vans. This is 1970s in pure distilled form. So with all that out of the way, as if you want to get it out of the way, we're going to move on to a section where we wrap it all up. That's called Got Any Last Words? This episode brought to you by the number three. Three first-time creators. Three cultural call-outs. Three stories. Three letters on the letters page. Three seconds to a max is screw it, hit stop record, and cancel the show. Once again, there are no real dogs here. Every story was pretty good. I'll give Ordeal the E for Excellence Award this time around. What's that? A mini history minute for the first time and got any last words? Don't mind if I do. The Army-Navy E Award, or the Excellence in War Production Award, was created to encourage the production of materials needed for the United States' complete military mobilization effort. The E Awards program began in July 1942 as an honor presented to the top performers of the civilian war industry during World War II. Excellence in quality and quantity of production were two of the determining factors in granting the awards. Others included overcoming production obstacles, low rate of absenteeism, avoidance of work stoppages, maintenance of fair labor standards, training of additional labor forces, effective management, record on accidents, health, sanitation, and plant protection, utilization of subcontracting facilities, cooperation between management and labor as afforded protection, and conservation of critical and strategic materials. The award consisted of a pennant for the plant and pins for all employees. I have a pin. You know where to look. By the time the program ended in 1945, the E Award had been presented to 4,283 of the nation's war production facilities, approximately 5%. Okay, so the E in E Awards stood for nerds. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> so for my last words, I'll say, so it's not a bad issue at all. However, as hard as Ordeal tried to woo me on that first page, I gotta give the top marks for this issue to Conquest. The sheer exuberance for the EC era of sci-fi in that story just bowled me over like a gruesome planet-conquering puppy in the end. Still, it was a well-above-average issue all around, so I'm once again a happy camper all the way through. Really? What is happening to me? So before I ponder that question and, and maybe actually, you know, experience some kind of personal growth, we will move on to the section we like to call the dead letter office, where we take a look at social feedback, social media, social contact, being social people out here on the Internet. And we'll start it off by saying that this dead letter office is brought to you by the Weird Warriors podcast, episode 50. Our Fighting Forces 153, featuring the losers, Jack Kirby and Max's birthday. That's right. And over on social media for this gala event, we received high signs from David Steele of the Earth 2 podcast, Magazines and Monsters, hosted by our good friend Doc Strange, also known as Billy D or Billy Delicious, who also showed up in his alter ego over there. Aya Boss, that again is E-I-A-V-O-S and is a... Big, big uh, participant over on the Facebook page, so I want to make sure I spell that name out for y'all. Luke Giaconetti of, of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. My mom stopped by because it was my birthday. Tim DeForest of ComicsRadioBlogspot.com, which you should all be checking out. A certain person named Jackson Zelda, who I believe is Jason Zeller. 
And also Chris over from BTO and Bat Books. Find him wherever you can. If you like Batman stuff, you've gone to the right place. Now, I'll mention our Redbubble shop too, just in case. Um, Yeah, go to redbubble.com. Look for the Weird Warriors podcast. Buy some stuff. You're not going to do it. So, hey, on to Gmail, where I'm going to let Rich start by reading a missive from somebody I just mentioned up top. Tim DeForest weighs in. Your commentary on the issue was excellent, but I really, really enjoyed Rich's history minute on real-life railguns. I knew a lot of that already, since I do know pretty much everything. We really need to get you on the show. But Rich's great research covered a lot of information in a succinct and entertaining manner. I have a love-hate relationship with Kirby's losers issues. Right before he took over, there was a story arc written by Bob Conagher, drawn by John Severin, in which the losers were in North Africa, during which the female member of the team, Norwegian resistance fighter Ona, had apparently defected to the Nazis. She hadn't, but the losers didn't know what she was doing, and Gunner, who had a crush on Ona, was particularly devastated. When Kirby took over, the storyline was abruptly dropped and Ona simply disappeared completely without explanation. The quality of Kirby's work on our fighting forces is superb, but when I was reading these as a kid, I was annoyed to no end at the abrupt end. It wasn't until I was an adult that I could revisit them and enjoy them on their own. After Conagher returned to the book, he did do a story that sort of ended Ona's story arc. Now, do you have any memory of 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 that picking up, or are you are you that like recently well versed in how the storylines went in the losers way back then? Oh my lord, and the the stuff that that the time period that this story arc was was some of the earliest stuff that I got, you know, from like probably literally twenty years ago, you know. So, you know, <laughs> I don't remember any of this stuff off the top of my head. I have to, I'd have to go back through and skim through it. I have too many of these darn DC War books. Even I can't remember all of them. <laughs> hey, you know, knowing you, I figured I'd check. But Tim did provide us with a really cool uh, scan of at least one page from the end of that storyline that he's talking about. And uh, it's beautiful John Severin art. We'll probably put that in the album for you guys to check out because who doesn't want to look at John Severin comic book art? All right. So I'll take the next two. Give Rich a break here. We got a, a message from our good buddy, Bucky749. And he said, I just listened to episode 50 with the losers fighting Big Max and thought it was a great story and really enjoyed the history that came later. So see, people keep giving the history minutes, the shout outs, and they deserve it. Bucky goes on to say, here's a recommendation. Dollar Tree put out a a series of figures and a comic. Sadly, the comic only ran for one issue, but here are some pictures. I think Final Faction might be right up your guy's alley, or right up your guy's bunkers, so to speak. And Bucky provides us with a picture of Final Faction, First Impact, The Origin Story, number one. And at least one of the action figures, uh, this uh, character, Amari, who's a large woman with some kind of uh, really powerful mace, sort of like the big Barda of the team, it looks like. And I wrote back to Bucky and I, I said, I had heard of these because I am Facebook friends with the artist that worked on the comic. So they were sharing progress pictures. And then at the launch, they were like, get out to Dollar Tree, even if you never go there and and buy this comic and stuff. And maybe they'll make a second series. And 
According to Bucky, they're not going to do that, but we'll see. We'll see. And if, if, if you can get out to a Dollar Tree, these are cool little action figures with a silly, like, cybernetic G.I. Joe fights aliens kind of theme to it. I mean, why not? For a buck, are you going to get a better bunch of disposable action reading than that? And it comes with an action figure? I say you might not. All right? We also heard from the infamous Jackson Zelda, also known as Jason Zeller, founder and sole owner, question mark, of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award. He says, hey guys, oh, and happy birthday, Max. I enjoyed your coverage of our Fighting Forces number 153 featuring the Losers. I have read several of the Losers comics over the years, but none from the great Jack King Kirby. I liked his take on the characters as he really made them feel alive and each with their own unique personality. The cover sucks you in immediately, and I just love the idea of the Devastator. Straight from a science fiction pulp magazine. Trying to take out Big Max made me remember, and here's where Jason always connects with me, the PlayStation 1 classic Medal of Honor, in which you go and sabotage a big German railgun similar to the one in this story. Jason and me and the PS1 vibes, man. I mean, Rich might have even played Medal of Honor. We'll, we'll find out. The idea behind bringing out Big Max into the daylight by using Devastator as a diversion was a great turn of events and totally made sense. Thanks, Rich, again, for pointing out that the inflatable tanks were that inflatable tanks were used to confuse the Germans during the planned Normandy invasion. I had forgotten all about that. As for me, Max. I didn't even know it happened until that episode. I kept wondering how the fake weapon was going to make a difference. Jason says, my favorite part of the issue was the letter by Kirby at the end. Oh, yeah. I like that the losers can be used all over the warfront to explore many areas and just not one part of the war. Kirby using parts of himself and his fellow soldiers and friends as characteristics of the losers really makes sense as he had done that so well in the past with the Fantastic Four and other early Marvel superhero titles. Reaching out to the readers for their input is also important, and getting that feedback can help turn around sagging sales in a title. Oh, and man, wasn't he prophetic in saying to keep your comics? Take care, guys, Jason. The end. And here comes Rich. Uh, yeah, to answer your question from before, uh, this is one of the odd occasions where we are on the same page. I've got like three or four of those classic, you know, Medal of Honor video games downstairs, and I played them incessantly <laughs> me world war ii game yeah i just i just don't see it yeah but yeah those games were freaking great but yes moving on remember the little question mark that uh, max uh, hung out there before when asked talking about jason zeller yeah move over and make room in that podium it appears you have company chuck bushman heard our promo on the Save for Half podcast and used our summertime slowdown to catch up. He confirmed when asked that he, he has listened to every episode and thinks we do a fantastic job, but still recognizes Jason as the king. So congratulations, Chuck. Now go out and buy some merch and get a star from Sam Glanson's flag. Ha -ha! There we go. Yeah. Oh, I didn't mention that during my uh, rather deflated promoting of the Redbubble store. There's a, you can win something, people. You can win something amazing for buying some merch and sending photo proof to us. All right. You can win a star from Sam Glansman's flag, the flag he flew over his place of residence. All right. So, uh, uh, uh. 
hard sells over there. I'm going to say that's that's it, people. That's that's the dead letter office. That's the issue. That's the ads. It's all done, except for one little thing, one little thing more from Rich, because he's a giving person. He's going to give you a teaser for the next episode. What are you here for? Weird War Tales number 46. Vampires by Evans. Zombies by Joggleman. Mutants by Ditko. Yes! Steve Ditko joins the Weird War Tales bullpen. Hold Max back, everyone. He wants to record this one now. I, I did peek ahead and looked at the art, and man, that <laughs> I, I didn't read the... I didn't read it yet, but the art is freaking great in all three stories. So um, I'm psyched. I'm psyched. I, I couldn't I couldn't hold myself back. I had to look at the Ditko stuff, but then the whole rest of it looks beautiful. So I won't spoil it because we haven't recorded it yet. What I will do instead is engage in a little podcast station identification here and let you know that what you've been listening to has been the Weird Warriors podcast. Rich and I, we've been the Batlin Bros. We've been the Weird Warriors. And we will always promise to make war. No more.